Welcome to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Great. Well, we're back. Sorry about our long, long time away from you all. We had a bunch of stuff come up. I had a trial. Then I got COVID. What else happened? You had that Supreme Court. <laughs> I had a, I had a file Halloween. for the Supreme Court of California, the good one. That was 67 pages. Uh, yeah, our day jobs are just sort of demanding our attention, apparently. Um, but that's why we are trying to build our podcast empire so we could not have day jobs anymore. <laughs> Keep listening. <laughs> I'm not working, but I did have a funeral. So there you go. Yes, an out-of-state funeral. I think I read something where that Maine is the safest state in the country. I could see that because like it's all the way up there it's just moose it's like so empty yeah it's safer than like Wyoming which has 10 people in it yeah but they have don't they have a lot of buffalo or something so like buffalo attacks or yeah like murders by buffalo <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's violent right I don't think you have any buffalo in Maine although like freezing to death has got to kill a fair amount of people oh my gosh so cold so we're back hopefully we will not be so busy going forward and my COVID is almost done second time around COVID it's equally as tedious the second time around so moving on to today's episode I'll be your host today Rose and I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts Sam and Malika Today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 15, The Fifth Race. Okay, so overall, Malika, is this a thumbs down or a thumbs up before we get into the details? Or a thumbs sideways? Um, You know how I feel about Grays. I will not rehash. <laughs> it was not as loathsome as I expected. See, when we talk them down, you like them better. When we talk them up, you don't like them. So we should just shit on every episode before you watch it. And you're going to be you like, do. it's not that bad. You are, you guys always <laughs> shit on every episode before <laughs> I <Yeah>. watch it. <laughs> they actually were not as loathsome as I was expecting. All right. We're making progress then. Yeah. I don't know about that. So we started this episode in the conference room. We're learning that they are analyzing the information they got from Ernest's Littlefield's planet, and they find a planet that has a ring of symbols that match one of the languages on that, you know, meaning of life stuff, alien UN meeting place. And Daniel's really excited about it. They might be allied with the Asgard, so everyone decides it's worth going. That part where Daniel's like, I can't read anything except for this Norse symbol. I was like, oh my gosh, it's either going to be the grays or like some white supremacists. <laughs> Who else would put a Norse symbol? 
I'm, I guessed correctly, it was the Greys. Well, the, we already know the Asgard's language, right? So or we they, we can identify which is Asgard. So this is, this is not them. Right. So they do gate to this planet that has this ring, sort of a giant claustrophobia, a claustrophobic worst nightmare. You gate into a solid, seemingly underground room with no windows and no exit. Freak me the fuck out. And nothing in it. After some quips, Jack's like, let's, Let's get out of here. Walk through the circle. Something or this sort of device protrudes from the wall. Teal looks into it. Nothing happens. O'Neill looks into it, grabs his head, flash of light, sort of head downloads him, and then he collapses to the floor. Then we have the credits. That device looked like it was from the Alien movie. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I only saw the Alien movie once and it was a long time ago and I was really drunk. So I really don't remember it. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I, as a sci-fi fan, I really should know more about Alien, but I don't. I know Sigourney Weaver's in it. I know she wears like skimpy underwear in some scenes. And I know there's like a very gooey alien. Maybe it's not the first Alien. Maybe it's like Alien Insurrection. I don't know. But they it's when they go on the alien ship and it's the alien architecture. It's all black flowy black lines that's what it remind me of so the the lines design in the in this room it, it confused me because it looks like ghoul design but this is the same design of the room that we saw on, on Ernest planet did the ghoul rip off that design I is this so. ancient design so the ghoul ripped it off because you see it like on the Jafai uniforms that's sort of like long curved and those yeah that like curved look of it it's it, that's looks like ghoul design to me maybe they just saw it and we're like we like this yeah well we know that the ghoul rip off certain things like weapons and architecture apparently <laughs> apparently <laughs> well the thing is is that when that appeared i was like do not do not put your head close <laughs> to that it's like the perfect height and the circle was perfect to like suck in your head right? Either just rip your face off or actually just decapitate you. That's what I was expecting. Because again, you're a, you're a horror fan, so. I am. <laughs> but then when it grabbed O'Neill, I was like, <laughs> I told you. were asking for it? <laughs> it's, like, it's like going into the basement in a horror movie. It's like, shouldn't we yeah, do that? Do it. Don't do it. Anyway. And they saw the same thing, right? The the lights. So Teal and O'Neill saw the same thing. Okay. No, he just, I think it, it like scanned him and was like, you don't have a gold, so let's head suck you. Okay. This episode would have been so, so different if Carter had been the one who stuck her head in there. Yeah, it would have been interesting. And then you, so you find out some stuff later about the ancients and, and that we won't discuss now because it would be a spoiler. But I don't think the episode would have worked with any other person, any of the other. other so Teal tried, he failed. Do you think Carter would have been rejected because she has Naquita in her system from Jolinar? Is it the Naquita or is it the Gaould in his belly? Or chest? We don't know. Yeah, it could be either or or both. I think she would be rejected, but it's not based on what we saw in this episode. I think it's based on later episodes. And Daniel would be rejected. Yes, poor Daniel. Always rejected. <laughs> I know. All right. So we get to, we get back to the base. We get to the infirmary. 
Janet's doing her favorite. They really like to do this shot where she's like holding the pen light at the camera. They do that a, a lot. And it's always funny. So she's examining O'Neill, says he's fine. He apparently he was catatonic for an hour. Um, O'Neill seems utterly unconcerned. He's like, yeah, well, I'm good now. See you later. Here's the thing. He's acting weird. He was catatonic um, for an hour. He doesn't remember anything. And they just let him stand up and walk out. Like, yeah. haven't we already seen the team get taken over by things? We just had the one where the cro- the raven. Oh, the spirits? Yeah. The, gil- the gill face? The gill face. Yes. Yeah, the gill face people. We just experienced, you know, fake team. I think they were team seven or something. Um, we just saw that. Why would you just let him, if he's acting weird and he has all these other things going on, even if his vitals are perfect, why would you just let him stand up and run out of the infirmary? You also have the Jolinar situation where Sam was acting weird. But is it because all they did was go into this room and come back? They didn't interact with any aliens or alien worlds, really. Something grabbed O'Neill's head and wouldn't let him go and then knocked him unconscious. That's unusual, yes. That's something just, you know, I'm just saying Dr. Frazier needs to keep him in quarantine just for a little bit longer. Yeah, I agree. I think I think given that they don't know what this device was, it obviously did something to him. And now he's, but is he acting weird at this point? He just sort of is doing his usual, like, I'm over this bullshit thing. Like at this point, he's not acting strange other than being unconcerned that he was catatonic for an hour. Well, no, I think he is being strange because Carter and Dr. Frazier are like giving each other side eye about his responses because he was like, okay, okay. I don't, they noticed something was off. Yeah, he did seem off. That was my question also. Is it starting to affect him like right away? I think so. Well, segueing into the next scene, I think his behavior here. So first you see him drawing that picture kind of looks like a doodle but later we realizes the plan for whatever device he was going to make he's very um you know hammond's asking questions he's very impatient throughout this whole scene we looked we saw it sucked my head it let me go can we be done why is that because he needs to get on working on that machine that he's doodling so his subconscious is telling him to get out of this stupid meeting because he has more important things to do well doesn't everybody's self-conscious <laughs> say get out of this meeting <laughs> meeting yes. but I think when he went there there was a specific reason and he had tasks he had to do even though he didn't necessarily know what the tasks were yet he had things he had to do I think he just wanted to get through the meeting well then he does say there's absolutely nothing cruvis with me that's the first indication that he's not fine. Hammond tells him to relax, take time to relax, but just stay on the base. At this point, I would think a little bit more caution would have been warranted. <laughs> but like, let me escort you to a holding cell while we figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. But I did like um, RDA's timing here. I mean, he I think he plays this episode very well. I mean, it's not so very much outside his wheelhouse. Like he's really good at just sort of being like sarcastic and impatient and stuff like that. But I I really, I think his timing here is great in this scene. 
but still like when he rips off that paper like kind of slowly <laughs> like puts folds it up and puts it in his pocket i thought that was funny mm-hmm. and shuffles away mm-hmm. yeah. all right so we go to the gym and we have teal teal and o'neill boxing you have a a very protective geared up <laughs> o'neill that is the biggest against- what is this a cod piece or something <laughs> made out of oh, on, on, the, on his junk yes <laughs> is that standard boxing gear i don't know <laughs> it's like i don't think so i've never seen it before i mean is it common to like punch someone in their junk when you're sparring i don't see how you would accidentally hit that area it seems like you could just agree to stay away maybe well, boxers wear it underneath their their um trunks and yeah, i notice i'm sure they wear a cup or something but, yeah well isn't there there that rule this is we i don't think any of us watch boxing but like no you know the referee says something like no hitting below the belt but that's like a no-go zone obviously not very trusting of tilk well maybe tilk is like maybe tilk's not really a boxer he's like more into mixed martial arts and might like accidentally knee him in the junk yes (laughs) Well, O'Neill has explained to him how to like dance around. You get some, again, some good comic relief here with Teal and O'Neill. Are we dancing or are we preparing to do battle? Yeah, O'Neill give him that nice little punch in the chest and Teal respond with a straight one to his face. And O'Neill falls down. And then that's when he starts speaking more ancient. Bender Kozars. But, but if O'Neill needs to go build things according to what those lights told him to do then why is he boxing that's why i don't think he's really it's really hit him yet i don't think that this is not like it's not like programming where it's like like he's a robot and they're like you have to do this now i think it's like slowly unspooling but why now why box now i mean we haven't hit like um two years of of tilk being on earth but we're definitely over a year now. And it seems like they've never done this before. It does seem like that. Seems like this was his first boxing lesson. Yeah. Or dancing. Battling or dancing. Maybe they were just trying something new. So we go to Daniel's office. And O'Neill's like, what's going on? I've lost the philatus to speak properly. Then Daniel starts looking that up in his latin book turns out that the language is a i guess similar to medieval latin he just pulls that latin word out of what out of that that quickly yeah Yeah. oh daniel yeah well daniel is a master of languages as we know and and many things a master of many things that he could pull out of the top of his head at you know moments notice so o'neill seals the sees this the image of the circle of writing on the screen and reads it and doesn't know what it means. He just says that the words are popping into his frond and Daniel's eyes like start twinkling. A frond is like a a leaf. I think it's frond. F-R-O-N. Okay, never mind. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Latin, right? And then we're sort of, then Daniel and Sam are walking back into Daniel's office and Daniel shows Sam this chalkboard full of gibberish equations that she can't make heads or tails of so is this language 
the language spoken by the ancients. Yeah. And it's derived or it's similar to Latin. That's apparently. I think there's there we're supposed to think that the ancients had some role in early human civilizations at this point in the show. Okay. Tiny spoiler is that we do learn more about the ancients and we do see more stuff about them. I find it very inconsistent how they develop in terms of the timing of ancient relations with humans and its connection to Latin is really inconsistent throughout the series. Yeah. Great. So back in the infirmary, we show scans of Jack's brain and it looks like his brain is operating at over 90% capacity, which is apparently a lot more than the rest of us. So uh, O'Neill's not in the infirmary where he's supposed to be. So the rest of SGU and go to look for him and they do find him making something that involves some little green glowing doohickey that he needs, but he doesn't know why he needs it. He just knows he needs, he needs it. Do we know what this green doohickey is? Like, What is this thing? It goes into the thing that they then put in the power thing. I know, but he he got it from from what? From from everyday materials? No, <laughs> it was from Kilt's staff weapon. Who was it? Yeah, because um, they show like him slowly pulling it out. But then when he's talking to whoever finds him, um, they do a shot and behind him, it shows Tilk's staff weapon open. Mm. So he took that out of Tilk's. Who knew that that was even in there? Probably I mean, not Tilk. <laughs> so this pisses me off to know, and it's not really this so much this episode, but like this episode in combination with a later episode. If you can make a device like this that can transport you to galaxies and give your Stargate all this extra power with materials that you have at the SGC, why aren't you making that all the time? Like, what the fuck? Point. Yes, good point. What? We can revisit that in later seasons. But the thing is, is that it wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for Tilk's thing, right? And the knowledge. So and the knowledge, but once he made it, Sam's a smart cookie. Once he made it, she would like look at it, deconstruct it, and know how it works. And then so she can then make it the next time they need one like that. And they can just go off world and shoot some Jaffa, get their staff weapons, and bring them back. And or a similar fun. or a similar power source. Right. Yeah. We then have is this in the conference room, I think. We have Sam Daniel. And Janet talking to Hammond about Neil's condition and Hammond's asking if he poses a threat. Nobody really knows. I think Hammond's being exceedingly reckless here. Like you don't, you know, if you don't know it's a threat, right? Isn't this the whole thing? If you don't know it's a threat, assume it's a threat until you learn it's not a threat, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, Based on everything they know about the Stargate, other worlds, their experiences. Yes. He is a threat and they should do something about it. Yeah, they don't think, I mean, at the very least, confine him to something. And then mm-hmm. just like, like, which they do all the time. They confine people to quarters all the time with the guards outside. Do that um, until you figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So that just didn't feel believable to me. And then, um, so Daniel says that O'Neill was able to read the ring of writing. And when Hammond asks what it means, he says it either means the place of our legacy or a piece of our leg, which is funny, but makes no sense. It does not. Why would those two words sound similar? In medieval Latin, I don't know. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, but cheap joke. We'll take it. And um, Daniel suggests that the device downloaded the language into O'Neill's brain and he's slowly, slowly like coming out after it was downloaded. It must be, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's similar to aphasia. That's where you start saying words that don't make sense. Yeah. Or you like start assigning other words to meanings of other words. Yeah. I think that's might be one, one kind of aphasia, but most people who have aphasia, they just lose language. It's not replaced by something else. There's a deep space nine episode about aphasia where that was like what Sam's describing. Yeah. I think it's babble. Is it babble? Yeah. Where they just started spouting poetry or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Because like, oh my God, the Star Trek talk. It's fine. <laughs> it's like, you know how people who have kids, their kids are acting up and screaming and making noise and you can't even hear them. The moms and dads can't even hear them. It's like that. When you guys start talking about Star Trek, I just can't even hear you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like I disassociate and go to my happy place. <laughs> By the way, the new Picard season, fantastic. No spoilers. It's fantastic. I haven't finished it yet, but through episode nine, fantastic. Sam's seen the episode 10 and she's less enthusiastic. So I'm a little worried about the last episode, but I was, I'm very happy. Yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. So we're back in the control room. O'Neill is like furiously tapping something into the computer. Sam is locked out. Hammond's like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. You know me on computers. And he's like, well, stop doing it. He's like, I wish I could. Can't. Teal pulls him away. Sam is kind of locked out. She thinks he's inputting a program. And then he O'Neill manages to like push one final button. And the computer comes back online with all these new gate addresses popping up. He's just pushing in zeros and ones. <laughs> I mean, is that yeah. what he's doing but isn't that yeah. that's program code do not understand coding like i'm a fucking idiot when anyone tries to talk to me about coding i just don't get it and i have no interest in it but it's interesting to other people yeah i that was my <laughs> um my college major was program. coding mm-hmm. yeah so you you should know you should definitely talk about this stuff i it's just like i i just can't process it for some reason it's just like when people talk about like coding languages, I'm like, what do you, what are you talking about? Well, like, can I make a language, like any language I want and call it a coding language? Yeah, but then you would have to write programs that would tell the computer that when you put in your new word, the new word would equal this. And then this would have to be an established language already. So why would I do that? To make it easier for some people. Like Java was supposed to be an easier language for a lot of people. Um, Python was supposed to be easier for people to program um, in the biotech world. This is why I look so bored. It's not not bored. I mean, like, this is why I am poor because I am not a techie, even though I live in the techiest part of the country. I'm not a techie. It's very, really bad techie. But it's very lonely programming, coding. You have a great relationship with your computer, but not so much anyone else. Aren't you in an office with all these other people that are also coding? Yeah, but you're just staring at your computer. There's not much interaction at all. I mean, I stare at my computer most of my work day. I know. I was going to say, you probably (laughs) do with those briefs. Yeah, but you do go to court. I mean, you interact with people. You you have to deal with people's lives. So it's 
it's, Although it's debatable whether the interacting with people in court actually improves my work experience or not. Yeah, true. So we're in, I think it's Daniel's office, someone's office. Sam says that the program rewrote machine code. O'Neill's lost the ability to speak anything but ancient and translates to, he's doing some more translation of the inscription that says, we are the ancients. And Daniel hypothesizes that they are the gate builders because they are the teachers of roads and Romans learned to build roads from the gods that they call the ancient ones and roads means wormholes, which means they're the gate builders. <laughs> well, Daniel should know this. Romans were not the first people to build roads and specifically Egypt. There was a pharaoh named Cheops, who around uh, 2500 BCE, he created the earliest paved road on record. And it was a construction road that went a thousand yards. It was a thousand yards long and 60 feet wide. And it led up to the site of the Great Pyramid. But that's kind of been erased. So 500 years later, that's when, yeah. The Romans created the idea of roads. So Daniel, being an Egyptologist, should know about Egypt. He should know about this before Romans. <laughs> but so would it's fair to say that the Romans made the first system of roads as opposed to one single road? Well, I'm, sure, we I mean, I'm sure that the Egyptians built more than one road. But because it wasn't supposedly they get erased because it wasn't used in trade. It was used in construction, you know, but it was paved. But a road isn't like a microwave. I mean, they had paths back then. It's not a novel concept, right? According to people who like to erase other people, the Romans created this out of whole cloth we're the first ones to ever pave a road and we're the only persons that ever used it to to conduct trade so is oh. it just the fact that they paved it that makes yeah. that, that gives them special but before that they had roads that were just not paved yeah right yeah those don't paths. count as roads. right those count. <laughs> yes paths people those have got to walk paths. somewhere yeah you you make a groove Right. Uh, but the leap from roads, like physical roads on a land that you use to travel between places seems highly different than a wormhole. So I, I'm not sure of this extra extrapolation between building roads, which we understand as building actual roads that like people and animals travel on to like wormholes, which presumably the Romans did not build. You know, I kind of see this as a parallel, right? Jumping from the idea that Romans created this road, therefore the ancients taught the Romans how to build roads because they already had wormholes, et cetera, et cetera. And then later we're going to find out that it's the greys, right? So, and the greys, erase everybody's history especially brown people's history of innovation but the grays weren't the road builder they weren't the ancients 
Oh, but they were part of the alliance. Mm -hmm. So Daniel has yet another fantastic leap of logic um, that leads him to this, to this apparently right conclusion. I'm just not sure that that is a reasonable leap that one would make. So, I mean, the idea that he's saying is that somehow the ancients, whoever they are, were somehow present on ancient earth and instructing the Romans on how to make roads. And from that, we can infer that they're the road builders that build the gate system. It doesn't quite make sense to me. But O'Neill does say that, um, oh, and, and they were speculating as to why then they would have this device. And Daniel says, well, it's to pass on their knowledge. And O'Neill is saying that he needs a new location, but can't explain where he wants to go. And when Sam presses him as in onto explaining the board of equations, he tells her 10 equals eight. And that seems to unlock something. And, and suddenly it's a big deal. Base eight math. But what is it? Do we ever learn what is this equation? Or it's just stuff to study. Just little circles okay. on the board. Right. So she can now figure it out and it's just not applicable to their current predicament. How many um, gate addresses are there or gate coordinates? That's it. Is it eight? Seven. Seven. For I mean, so there's eight for O'Neill. Yeah. Okay. So, so is that where they got the base eight math? I, maybe they just did base eight math in ancient. Like, why not base 16? That's a, why do we do base 10? I don't know. <laughs> what is, did somebody look up base eight math? So, I mean, I learned this in school, base eight math. So we, we have a system that goes like one through 10 and sort of the, the system is based on the number 10. Um, but you, that's sort of arbitrary. And so base eight math is it goes one through eight and then eight's the sort of main principle that is built on the math. I think 10 is, we're used to, we're so used to it that it seems intuitive, but I don't think it is, right? It's not. And then base 16, I think after nine, you start using letters. But we actually use base 16 in computing. So I think that would make more sense if they're going to change up the base. Why base 16 for computing? I have no idea. <laughs> That's the extent of my my knowledge about that. I just remember when I was in computer programming class, we learned about base 16. I'm going to look it up. Hexadecimal. Yep. Because it can be used to represent large numbers with fewer digits. Ah, right. Because you have to, because we don't have any number. Like, so we have 10 symbols, right? Zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's base 10. If you want to get to a number higher than nine, you have to combine numerals, right? For base eight, they would only use zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine would be nowhere. Yeah. Or is it, is it, is this okay. eight only go up to seven? I think, yeah, zero through seven. We get zero through seven, so eight and nine are nowhere. So if you wanted to do base 16, you need numbers to come up after nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, doesn't exist in any of our understanding. So you would have to either make up random symbols or apparently use alpha alphabetic characters. Yeah. So I think that would be hard to conceptualize. So that's why they used base eight. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think it's just random. I could be anything for some any reason. It sounds weird and slightly cool. So sure. I'm gonna look up why we use base 10. Goes back to ancient civilizations. So then if this is ancient, 10 was the best number to use as a base for counting because of 10 fingers. That's it. Okay. It's our fingers. <laughs> How many fingers did, did the grays have? Four? 
Maybe they only had four fingers. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> this is the ancients. This is not the great. And right, right, right. the ancients apparently are like a pre-human civilization, right? So, and we're interacting with the Romans and teaching them how to build roads. So if the ancient civilizations are using 10, why would the ancients use base eight? They only had four fingers. Because I don't think they have, from what we know of them, I don't think they have fingers, but. The ancients? Yeah. No, they. But aren't they like, we, I don't want to do spoilers. I know. <laughs> well, the ancients are speaking through all their, no- or some of their knowledge is in O'Neill. So he would, he knows somewhere in his brain or the ancients are telling him that if you use base eight math, you will be able to get to the grace part of my alliance and they will be able to help. You think right? that's what it means? I thought the the math meant nothing I mean, it means something, but I think it's just like knowledge that he was expounding, not anything related to him getting to the greys. Was this before? No, this was after he made the design. Remember he wrote, um, he designed the the machine Mm -hmm. towards the beginning. Okay, so maybe he's expressing Asgard math not ancient math and then they it would make sense that another species would come up with another mathematical system and it would make sense that the the ancients would know the asgard's math because they're in an alliance together let me see if they have ten four fingers i don't remember how many but i know that they were gooey i think they do have four fingers but they only have three toes so <laughs> So, what the toes have to do with it? Well, we have four toes. We have 10 fingers and 10 toes. The Asgard should have four fingers and four toes. That's the way it works. It's the law. I think they have, oh, but they did do the hand thing, right? I think they have four fingers. So, base eight would make sense as an Asgard counting system. Okay, we've solved the the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Good, because I'm sure that they had this conversation in the writer's room and came up with base eight for this reason. Okay, base eight math, because it's he's trying to get to the Asgard. This is Asgard math and they have four fingers. Okay, now we go to the, the infirmary. There's more scans of O'Neill's brain. And uh, Janet says that whatever is affecting him is taking over incrementally that he could still write because the areas of the brain that handle writing is different than the areas that handle speaking. Um, But the worst case scenario is that he's going to lose the ability to understand them or communicate with them or that his brain will just shut down completely. Dun, dun, dun. So then we sort of go into the mini story, the mini episode part of the episode is what I call Like they have this little side trip where they um, go to this planet I guess one of the new planets that O'Neill inputted into there is they found one with uh, symbols that match the language. Um, Hammond authorizes SG-1 to go without O'Neill. And Daniel says, O'Neill stay and I have to stay too. So they send a random dude with SG-1. But slow down because Mm -hmm. I noticed that neither of you mentioned that this is a shipper's corner. Which part? Daniel saying, I cannot leave him like this, and I won't. <laughs> that's an O'Neill, Daniel Shipper's Corner? That's, yeah, that's it. Fair point, fair point. 
That's I'm it. not boarding that ship. <laughs> <laughs> I generally am not on the O'Neill Daniel ship train ship, but yes. Yeah. They're, they are best friends. He looked at him, the way he looked at him was like, I will be there to support you. I will take care of you. I'm surprised. They didn't want to go on this death mission. He's like, <laughs> I ain't going. You guys can go. I'll stay here and translate. <laughs> Why didn't they give uh, the the head of the mission to Carter? At this point, Carter's a captain, right? He's still oh, a right. captain. Okay. So at some point she does become not a captain. She goes up. But not yet, right? So I think I think a captain's too junior. But still, you know, she's more than qualified. This is where Sam says the equation is a revolutionary new formula for calculating the distance between twin planetary bodies, right? That's what he drew on the board. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Is that relevant to them going, if to him going to the Asgard? Is that where, so they can pinpoint where this planet is if they know the distance between other planets? So they can use that as a jumping off point? Yeah, maybe. Maybe that will help them plot other galaxies. Yeah. And we kind of just leave that thread there hanging. Mm -hmm. So they go through the gate with two random white dudes joining their team. And then we are in Daniel's office where O'Neill is pacing as Daniel is Daniel and him are sort of working on this translation. And he keeps saying he has to go through the gate. Now it's, it's interesting. Like, is this kind of like an instinct that's taking over O'Neill? Like he has to go through the gate. He doesn't know why he just feels this overwhelming urge to go. Like how animals migrate to certain places. I think so. Yeah, I think so too. Cause he can't, it seems like he can't explain it. Mm-hmm. Even though he is able to type it on the computer, which is odd, he can't talk, but he can still type English on the computer. It, did that's uh, what Janet said that yeah, the, language, yeah. the written, written language centers are different? That's not my experience with aphasia. But <laughs> okay, have you dealt with aphasia from an ancient device? No, just from a migraine. So maybe that's the difference. <laughs> is and is this okay? I think the next scene is where we see. Um, Hamid sort of hunting and pecking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty funny. He should have a secretary or like a dictation machine. Can you imagine his reports? They'd be like three words and it would take him like an hour. So he's old, right? They didn't have computers, like I said, typewriters. But he's, a, I don't know, the generals <laughs> type their own reports. He probably used a telegraph machine and did. So at this point, though, O'Neill, played by Richard Dean Anderson, is not his acting is all body body language. There's no he's no more lines until the very end. I think he does a pretty good job with that. I kind of feel like this is his forte. It's like not speaking. <laughs> yeah emoting but not speaking <laughs> physicality physical Physi- yeah like physicality expressing things through nonverbal cues like he's he very good at it yeah yeah i mean we did that in that episode that we, you all had some issues with it but um the the when he turns into a caveman 
is that one. Yeah, some of the choices during that episode were a little weird, but the his movements in this episode definitely matched his mood of frustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He pulls off frustration, right? I mean, like there's some things, this is how I think about RDA. It's like, he sort of has, I think he doesn't go out of his comfort zone very much as an actor, uh, but the things he does in his comfort zone are great. I mean, he comes across as this is his, his whole shtick as this sort of using humor to avoid emotional depth, frustration, irritation, general snarkiness. He does it very well. So then we have Lieutenant Simmons. Is this the first time we see him in the episode? Simmons, the young, the young whippersnapper who is in love with Sam. Is this confirmation that he's still alive? Because remember the last time we saw him, I think we, we the, the question was left opened as whether he died from that virus. No, not the, a virus. The the zombie yes, aliens. Yeah. <laughs> so he's alive. Woo-hoo. The, the microscopic zombie that yeah. glow in your blood. <laughs> No, he's alive. He definitely is alive. I had a memory. I don't know why. I had that, when we saw that, was a message in a bottle? I hadn't seen it in a few years. And for some reason, I had a memory that he died during that episode, but apparently he didn't. Just goes to show how memorable his character was. Um, but he's here. He's in this episode doing some stuff. And he lets him know that SG-1 didn't return the probe on schedule. So we dial out. And we see Sam on video looking pretty hot. He's in physically sweating hot. Also hot, <laughs> generally. <laughs> um, why, hadn't, why hadn't we seen this before? What? That they can speak back and forth to each other like this. Or have oh, we? Yeah, they can. I don't know if we've seen it before, but they can. So radio signals can transmit back and forth, but physical things can only go one way. Okay. Don't know why. Yeah, so we it's through the mouth, and we see Sam uh, and says, don't send rescue team. The DHD is seized up, and they can't dial it out, and the planet is pretty much scorching from a second sun. They're trying to manual dial out. So things are not looking so good for that team. Then we go back to the lab where you get the little glowy thing, the little greeny glowy thing, and he puts it in the other thing. <laughs> great, right? great description. <laughs> <laughs> how does he, so how does he make this with just stuff they have lying around <laughs> right this device essentially is a major power generator that they use to dial to another galaxy and he just like throws it together yeah i'm looking at it right now I, and i can't tell what the underlying structure of this thing was like maybe it was a lantern at some point with the glowy thing no this this huge thing cylinder that he has that he's putting the glowing thing oh yeah like maybe it was like like a light fixture or something (laughs) (laughs) that turns into a power generator yeah it's pretty it glows it's like um what's it called one of those um glow sticks yeah glow sticks i was gonna say the things they give out at pride (laughs) so he's doing the the thing with glowy thing (laughs) janet's just sort of standing there watching him Daniel comes in, but it's, and Janet says she's trying to follow, but it's hard. And then uh, Daniel tells Janet that the rest of SG-1 is in trouble, but don't tell him. Don't tell on you. So we go to the conference room. We have the scientist dude and Siler showing him into shiny square <laughs> to give to SG-1. It annoys me a little bit how they always kind of make these civilian scientists like bumbling idiots. It's like, oh, because you're not military, you don't get to be like cool and smart and 
not a bumbling idiot. Like they're kind of uniformly bumbling idiots. Even when they're really smart, they're, they act like idiots and they treat them like idiots. And you would think that they would be able to get the smartest civilians on the planet, right? Right. They should get the smartest civilians on the planet. I think that's exactly who would be working here. But they have no, not no idea, just not much of one yet as to how to actually get them back. And then we go back to another video from the planet, which Sam says that the temperature is going to be two, more than 200 degrees in four hours and they'll be dead by the end of the day. Pretty dire. So why, why is Daniel keeping this information from O'Neill? He likes to protect people from themselves. <laughs> I feel like. like, why didn't he give Tanani the information about his ancestors in that episode spirits i think he likes to decide what's best for people great but he says you know it's very paternalistic um but he says he thinks he has enough on his mind maybe he doesn't want to upset him but you would think he might be able to help earlier than he thinks like he eventually that's what he does is tell him what's going on so he can help and he does had he done that an hour prior could have saved some skin cancer cells on sg1 and that's what happens. He goes back to the office, tells O'Neill. They have this issue. O'Neill picks up his little compass. What is it? What is that thing called? The protractor? protractor. Yes, the protractor. And what's the other thing? With a triangle. <laughs> yeah, there's little, you know, devices that architects use and starts drawing these plans. Architects um, and fifth graders. <laughs> <laughs> That was the last time I picked up a I remember you put the little thing in the middle and the pencil makes a perfect circle. That was so cool. And he tells them, shut up and go away. Yeah, what's with also Daniel's kind of an annoying in this scene. He's, yeah, it's annoying that he's deciding who gets to know what at certain times. And there's no reason to that at all. Like, I would think the general should be deciding this information. Like, tell, don't tell O'Neill yeah. or tell O'Neill. Yeah. Yeah. It's this episode just gives Daniel too much authority and um, he shouldn't, or it, it allows him to make guesses that turn out to be right when they actually really shouldn't be in real life too. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know we always talk about his tendency to make like wild leaps of logic and it turns out to be right. The reason they do that is because they need him to get to the answer and they need to get it fast. Right. They don't have hours to develop it, but there are times it just feels too outlandish to be believable. And I think this is one of those times. Mm -hmm. You would think Hammond would have said, bring O'Neill into this. Maybe you can help. I think that would have been a better choice. Maybe he was writing a memo or uh, type. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's Daniel's <laughs> like, I can't wait. I'm just going to take all the decisions into my own hands. <laughs> He's got to have a secretary, right? You would think so. We just never see them. Well, I think I seem to remember later on, there is a secretary that kind of hovers around the person in charge at the base. Yeah, but that's the only time we've ever seen someone. And that person came in just for that episode. So maybe he doesn't. But how you can't type up the amount of reports a general in his position has to type up by doing hunting and packing. There's no way you could do that. Right. Maybe he has a dictation machine and like, or maybe he sends them like, tapes cassette <laughs> <laughs> <Is that> tapes <laughs> no if it was if it was tapes 
And it was Hammond because remember we said that he's old in the nineties <laughs> and it would be like eight tracks. Oh God. They don't have eight tracks anymore. They didn't have eight tracks in the nineties. There's a eight track in my dad's kitchen right now. <laughs> How old is it? Oh, I don't know. I once got into a car when I was really young, maybe five or six, and it had an eight track player in it. I've never seen an eight track player in, in real life ever. And I am in my early 40s. I bet Hammond. I'm not that young. <laughs> and I completely was too young for any eight track business. But I bet Hammond remembers the eight track. But yeah, but you can't record on the eight track in 1999. They'd be like, what? expect us to do with this but that's what he's comfortable with that's what i'm saying i think records would probably be what he's comfortable you think he has a turntable at home no but he like he goes he has a memo he wants to do and so he goes into one of those glass booths and he he, (laughs) record yes he says it and it's like recording it on the record and then Maybe he sings. Mail it in into like a big manila envelope and mail it to Washington. (laughs) That's definitely what happens. Because do they have email at this point? They had email, right? They've had email since the early 90s. But did they have secure email where you could email like confidential documents? Or maybe they didn't realize there was such a thing as not secure email? Well, it started in the military. So So everything was secure. We could Google it. Or move on to the next. <laughs> Maybe he's recording voice memos and emailing them. Okay, so then we go back to the conference room, and you have the bumbling idiot scientists arguing and being useless for their usual shtick, and you have Daniel come in, or all of them come in with O'Neill's very detailed hand-drawn instructions, uh, and Daniel hands them the device and says, "Work on this." you useless people. And then they send the, the, the plans. Sam and the team come through and since the plans were perfect and she looks surprised to see that O'Neill put them together. And Teal'c is sorry that they couldn't find a way to help him. So that's sort of the mini story arc within the story arc. Yeah. Did you look at these plans? They're really intricate. Yeah. yeah I remember, I remember like that's pretty, yeah. The plans are quite intricate. It must've taken them a while to do it. At least an hour, I would expect. Well, they only had four hours before they were going to die. I mean, two, that's if it was going to be 200 degrees in four hours, it was probably already well over 100 degrees, right? Oh, yeah. When, at what point would they just die? Right? The hottest temperature on Earth was like 130 degrees. So even assuming they could find some shade, that doesn't give them a lot of time. You're, you're getting pretty close to like drop dad temperatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he has it in his head. He can use that blue pen to draw lots of little things quick well does it make him speedy i mean he's not he's not data (laughs) i don't know what you're talking about but (laughs) you use yeah he could do it if you know what you're gonna draw right it looks like really well drawn with like shaded areas and like very detailed but it's not that big you know it's like it looks like maybe it's like a quarter the really intricate stuff is like a quarter size of a quarter or something 
there's like cross hatching. Is that, that actually makes it harder? Term? I think if it's smaller, then it's you have to be more like careful. I just don't think it would take him an hour. Half an hour. Half an hour? Well, and it must have taken them very short to then fix it. I mean, you think if it was possible, Sam would have figured it out, but whatever. I guess those <laughs> things are complicated. Maybe it took him the full hour, but Sam looked at it and said, oh, I know exactly what to do. It took her like a minute. So now that story is resolved. Everyone's happy. Sam has her nice little sunburned face. I'm assuming they're going to monitor her for melanoma for a while because that sounds like a cancerous situation. She's quite fair skinned. Um, still looking great, though. Still looking great. Yeah. <laughs> so then Daniel, Sam, with her nice sunburned aura, uh, Daniel showing her this glowy device that O'Neill made and she's like I don't fucking know what this shit is and then we have the lights and sirens they're preparing to send the team to the next planet but uh, the Simmons says the gate won't dial out the computer is frozen and Sam says the gate is trying to draw more power than usual and then O'Neill takes his device and runs to the power room so what is happening here the, com the computer is dialing to the Asgard planet obviously it's starting the process and it needs that device to finish. How is it doing that? Is Did O'Neill input some kind of remote program? He like, inserted a plot hole. So he just, so like he's sitting in the, in Daniel's office or wherever he is, not anywhere near the gate. How is it dialing? He was putting in that machine code earlier. Maybe he had also written in a program that will start dialing out in two hours. Yeah, like they knew exactly at what point yeah, maybe he did. Like a remote dial, two hours and 15 minutes. And then he knew exactly when it when it was and he like ran to put the device in. But like, this is what's weird. So he, he knows a lot of stuff, but the human computers are limited by hu the way humans design them. Is the computer capable of receiving that kind of command? Yes. Because then when they try to redial that address, it won't lock because it has eighth chevrons, right? So how did he get it to do it the first time? But the re the reason why Simmons couldn't dial the eighth one later after this initial one is because the machine that O'Neill clips to the, the main power source with jumper cables, um, <laughs> yeah, it blew out. So they didn't have enough power to dial to an eighth with an eighth. This starts before that thing is hooked up, right? It starts dialing and then O'Neill runs and hooks up his device. And it, and before he does that, Sam says the gate is trying to draw more power than usual. So the eighth chevron, eight chevrons have, must have already been inputted, right? For that to be like, oh, I need a little more power. And he runs and it's like, oh, there's my power. But that didn't happen when they tried to dial out after. It just was like, nope, can't do eight. What are you talking about? So it's like, it's like, like you can know things. You can know things that the ancients knew, but you can't make a computer that's not capable of doing something do something. No, when they were trying to dial out afterwards, did it show up? Did the eighth, was there an eighth slot there? I can't remember. I don't like know. And, like, and like, if they don't, also, if they didn't know that eight chevrons are possible, how would the computer know to put an eighth slot? Well, that's what O'Neill was doing earlier. With so the he made it into eighth, capable of eight chevron dialing. Yeah, because you would but, need to write a, a new interface 
for the computer. So it would show that eighth slot. And that's what he was doing. And that's when Hammond was like, I'm not arresting you, but you can't do this. Because remember, he was just typing, 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 and nobody could get him to stop, couldn't read what he was typing in. Maybe. So other, so more than just inputting gate addresses, it was like rewriting the computer's program. Yeah. Okay. But then it lost that program immediately after. <laughs> what, what, Maliga? The code was still in the computer, but they didn't have access to the power to send a wormhole out to another galaxy. So a little, I, th- I mean, it just feels a little bumpy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. um, so, so the program is still there to call out to the eighth Chevron place, but they just don't have enough power. So they just need to find a power source to so then when you're dialing eight Chevron. So this is the first time we've encountered this. How does the wormhole or how does the gate know to wait for the eighth, right? It's like there's the same symbols, and one of them is the point of origin. So is it that if you dial a symbol that's not the point of origin and the computer knows it's not the point of origin, it treats it as a seventh chevron and waiting for the eighth chevron? The seventh one is always the point of origin, right? Is it always Earth? So if you're dying from Earth, it's always the Earth symbol. symbol. Yeah. So, Um, yeah, then what you just said, if if you don't input the point of origin signal, then the computer knows that it's going to be an eighth chevron. Kind of like dialing a different area code. Is that Sam that said that? Or Daniel? Sam. Sam. So Daniel and Teal are kind of just letting O'Neill jumper cable this device. (laughs) Sorry, COVID. Then they're just sort of watching as O'Neill like jumper cables this device to the entire base's power grid. And we're like, should we stop it? I don't know. It seems to be okay. I don't know. And they, he's saying in ancient, this is a good thing. So they're like, let's just go with it. Seems like a very big leap of faith, but I guess they kind of have no choice. And then he flicks the switch, device turns on, huge power boost goes to the gate. That's when they find out Chevron 7 encoded, not locked. Daniel's like, maybe this was the whole plan all along was to go here. And then the wormhole goes to another galaxy. Sam posits that the A Chevron adds a new distance calculation, kind of like a different area code. O'Neill goes through and everyone just sort of lets him go. Well, Daniel didn't want him to go. Daniel says, if you go through, you may not come back. O'Neill doesn't probably doesn't understand English anymore. This is definitely a shipper moment. It is. I Daniel gonna... O'Neill Shipro moment when Daniel's like forlorn that he might not come back and he wants to go with him. And oh no, Teal says he'll go with him. And Daniel says he needs to do this alone. It's a real bromance moment all around, I think. <laughs> Sam's like, whatever. <laughs> you guys have your ship. I have my ship. <laughs> Are you a Daniel O'Neill shipper? Oh yeah. my God. Yes. Since when? Sometimes, I don't know. That'd be a hell of a threesome. (laughs) Anyway, he can't have a code, so he may never come back. And O'Neill goes through. And they're watching him go through. Simmons, still so cute and kind of smitten. (laughs) It's like, 
Travelers Lost. And then we go to Malika's favorite planet, the home of the Asgard. Do you notice how the, that they're like peeking around the wall? Mm -hmm. That's because they know that they're bad and they, they know shame for who they are. At their core, they need to be ashamed. You will grow to love the Asgard. So Neil's looking real haggard in this scene. I mean, I guess they they make up Tim some like bags under his eyes and stuff. But he exits gate, exits the gate, falls onto the floor. The Asgard look at him curiously. Yeah, and he says, "I need help." And they did they always have those little ET hand device things? that like suck the knowledge out of his head. Like he just falls down, says I need help. And they immediately, you know, hand him and like suck the knowledge out of his head to make him normal. That's just in them all the time. I think this is the first we've seen of it. Yeah. I mean, you would think they'd take him to the infirmary and like do something to him. But it's like, no, sure. This happens all the time. Here you go. Do they not have opposable thumbs? I don't think so. That's dumb. (laughs) How do they grasp things? I know. Opposable thumbs is one of the main points of evolution that allow humans to develop into like intelligent beings. I don't know how you can be super intelligent without an opposable thumb. Maybe that's why they had to have such big brains so they could figure out how to hold things. (laughs) Or maybe they have like another way of holding things. Oh, like, um, what's that thing called? What's that? Not telepathy bloating oh telekinesis there you go (laughs) telekinesis yes yeah or maybe they have a thumb that like pops out when needed oh god it comes out of that little that a little um colorful thing on their palm yes i'm not sure that that stays because i'm looking at the picture of the hand and it looks like it's just four fingers with no thumb but i'm not sure if that is consistent throughout the series that seems like very poor design I'm reading around the about this hand device. There's a whole page on Stargate Wiki about it. Yeah, it is a little, it's similar to what the Gaulds had on their hand, yeah. even though it, theirs was more of a machine than a part of them. And it's a good one, not a bad one. Yeah. I'm sure they could use it for evil. I wouldn't put it past them. And they're not even being nice to O'Neill. They're like, he's stupid. Let's get this out of him. <laughs> and let's use it for our own good. Well, they get it out of him pretty fast. He collapses. Then we go back to the SGC where they're trying to redial the planet and the cam because the device appears to be dead. Then we go back to the Asgard planet and O'Neill wakes up and talks in English to them and they understand him. Says, thank you. And the Asgard say, you're welcome. And they tell him that the the archive is not meant for him because human physiology was not advanced enough to handle the technology. We can table for now why the device responded to him. If it's not meant for him, it shouldn't have worked. But we can table that for a few seasons from now. <laughs> and um, we find out that there oh, is it Othala, the name of them, in the galaxy of Ida. Mm-hmm. So this is an Asgard planet. And they are very impressed. They found it very impressive that O'Neill managed to, I guess, not die and use his subconscious knowledge to find them. And we find out that they have studied us closely. So th- is this a nod to the 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 lore of the Roswell Greys? Well, 
if it was, then, and they say that humans have great potential, they could only be doing it through anal probes. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> My <laughs> anal probes discover probes. potential. Yes. That's how they find out. So they've admitted to a history of anally probing humans. Yep. Yep. And the Asgard tells them about the Alliance, the Asgard, the Nox, the Ancients, and the Furlings, who we do not know. Are we ever going to meet them? Do you want to know? Just yes or no. No. It's like one of the <laughs> running gags of Stargate is like, who the fuck are the Furlings? I guess it's possible we met them, but we don't know who they are. Uh, of course. And humans still have a lot to prove before they can interact on that level. But O'Neill's like, yeah, okay, but we're here. And they've, Asgard says, they've already taken steps to be the fifth race. Then we go back to the control room. Can't close the iris. Everyone's freaking out. O'Neill, or the gate dials in. O'Neill comes back. Everybody's happy. He And he says they're going to be all right. The end. So let's talk about this episode. <coughs> Malika, you're going to start. So my DHD is stuck at 3.5 chevrons. All right. That's higher than I thought you would give it, considering how much you hate that Asgard. I do hate them. I do hate them. But we only get a little bit of them, right? Just in that red room where they're doing their evil things. So I thought, I thought O'Neill did a great job. I think, I think Carter did a great job. Simmons did a great job looking so cute and pushing little buttons. So that's why I gave it a 3.5, but there's a lot of plot holes. Mm -hmm. Sam. I give it a six, six chevrons. I like, yeah, I like RDA's performance. Um, there's a lot of cute little character moments that I didn't point to, but I, um, between Carter and um, O'Neill. But I know that there are also some little moments between Daniel and O'Neill that I will call out as well. Anyway, six chevrons. I'm going to give it six also. Um, is this just one of those episodes I just like? It's like on rewatch, I see it and I'm like, oh, I love that episode. It just makes me happy. You know, watching it again, I'm like, yeah, okay, there are some plot holes. It's a little meandering because it like has this this story and then it has that mini story of them getting stuck on the planet. And I feel like it could have been sort of tighter, but I just like it. I think it's a feel good episode. It, it ends on an optimistic note. I, I think RDA does a great job um, in this episode. I There's also a lot of cute little character exchanges. Just one of those nice episodes. But I don't have any visceral hatred of the Asgard, so <laughs> that probably helps. <laughs> um, is there anything that would have been different today if this episode was made today? Probably the contribution or lack thereof of the Greys. I don't think it would be the Greys that O'Neill would go to at the end. Well, we had talked about last time, I think it was Thor's Hammer and Thor's Chariot, how they may have, I, I think it would still be the Greys, but they wouldn't be Asgard. They'd be either just a, an alien race that doesn't mimic Norse 
mythology or or in different cultures gods because because we've talked about how problematic it is to adopt the norse mythology given how it's been co-opted by white supremacists and also i mean the greys like this is, was malika's point it's not just that they're asgard and sort of there's problematic issues with how their their role in our culture but um the greys uh, themselves have uh, some problematic roles in our culture like it's it's part of our cultural understanding and so you're kind of adopting the lore that goes along with it when you use them instead of just like a made-up alien race yeah so today they probably would have made up just another alien race i'm not sure like the purples <laughs> or the polka dots something like that star trek doesn't ever use the grays right i don't think so i don't think so either yeah, and I can't think of anything specific that would be different. They'd have email. <laughs> email reports. Poor Hammond. So thank you for joining us. Um, we're happy to be back. Sorry for our absence. We will be back next time with another episode of Probing the Wormhole. We'll be discussing episode 16, A Matter of Time. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. They could only be doing it through anal probes. Ouch! Like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you don't like us, still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole, Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also contact us on our website at Probing the Wormhole.